So Nehemiah chapter 8, let me lead us in prayer, and then we'll see what the Lord has in store for us for the next couple of hours. Any joke? (laughs) Someday, maybe. Who knows? All right. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Marseah on his right hand, and Pediah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshullam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Barney, Sherebiah, Jamin, Achub, Shebathai, Hodiah, Masaiah, Kalaita, Azariah, Jozabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the meaning so that the people understood the meaning. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go on your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and spend portions, send portions, pardon me, to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to the Lord our God, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went on their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. And they kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly, according to the rule. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful and gracious Father, we ask for you to graciously move among us this evening by your Spirit. Open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your Word. And in particular, please would you give us increasing wisdom and the capacity to see and be convicted by and make meaningful, fresh resolutions to dwell on 
the depths and riches of your word, the Bible. And so would you shape us and form us to be more in the image of Christ, we pray. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. I've been intrigued by some of the questions that have been asked either privately or in some of the panel uh, Q&A sessions in the last few days. I'm going to read a few out to you (laughs) that you may hear your own voices echoed from the pulpit. And um, I want to see if you can see what they have in common. Here are some questions. How do we know when to stand up for our rights against civil government intrusions which take away our liberties? How do we know, if we're a nurse or a doctor, what treatments we should offer to somebody who is gravely ill and maybe dying, but we don't want to run the risk of hastening their death in an ungodly way, nor preserving them alive in a way which just causes them pain needlessly when they're going to die in a few hours or days anyway? What should I do to become a more godly Christian Man, or what should I do to be a more godly Christian woman? What is godly masculinity or godly femininity anyway? What ambitions should I have? How do you discern the difference? Back to Pastor Neil's talk from a couple of days ago. How do you discern the difference between plundering the Egyptians and digging in Pharaoh's dumpster? How do you figure out which is which? How do I go about finding my own personal calling in life, and so on. There have been many questions of this kind. I don't know whether you notice they have a number of things in common. One thing they have in common, which you notice if you're trying to answer the questions, is that they're very difficult questions to answer. They're not questions that have a simple, short, concise, yes, no sort of answer. What they have in common is that they require wisdom. They require judgment In some cases, the answers that you'd give to one person would be quite different to the answer you give to somebody else, and you need to know them well. But above all, what you need is biblical wisdom. It's interesting, Pastor Bradley spoke um, I think, our first panel discussion about the, the value of Christian intuition. It's very valuable, Christian intuition, your gut feel. But you may know that a great deal of work has been done on human intuition in the last few decades, and the the results are in. Human intuition is an absolutely terrible guide to decision-making. It is very easy. I played this game with the guys I was sitting with at lunch. It is very easy to give people a scenario in which you give them a decision to make and they go one way, then you give them exactly the same scenario phrased in different words and they make exactly the opposite decision. It's very easy to do that because human intuition, just by itself, is a terrible guide to decision-making. But, as Pastor Bradley would, I'll get you up here to preach it, brother, would say, sanctified, scripture-soaked Christian intuition is what, we need, and it's what's needed to answer those questions. Those questions that require judgment, that require wisdom. And the problem is there's no shortcuts to getting it. There are no shortcuts to getting biblical wisdom. What we need to do 
Actually, there are, there are three angles on what we need to do. Um, we need a good relationships. We need good godly habits. And we need our minds and hearts soaked in the scriptures. Those of you who are all saints will recognize the echoes of John Frame's three perspectives. Existential relationships. Don't spend your time with scoffers or sluggards. Yes. A good habit. Because how we decide to do things is not independent of the, the godliness or ungodliness that we have habituated ourselves to. But above all, to guide all of that, what we need is the word of God. We need the normative perspective. And what we, you can't, there's no shortcut. If you go to bed with a Bible under your pillow, hoping it will sort of leak in. It's just, it can't be done. We need to be shaped and formed biblically. And it is the work of a lifetime to do that. Now that's what Nehemiah realized. By the time we get to the chapter I've just read to you, uh, you know the book of Nehemiah, I'm sure. Uh, I introduced the, the historical background briefly yesterday evening. By the time we get to chapter 8, we have finished rebuilding the walls. We've had all the conflicts with all the enemies around Sanballat and Tobiah and all those guys, and they've been seen off, and everything's sorted out, and the, the work has been completed. In other words, we've done the easy bit. Now all we need to do, <laughs> all we need to do, is to start training or retraining this community of people to live faithfully. Now the hard work begins. The hard work of feeding on the word of God and of reshaping the lives and instincts and intuitions of these people so that they can answer the early Iron Age equivalents of the questions that you guys have been asking for the last few days. And the only way to do that is if they feed on the word of God. And that's what they start to do in this chapter. And my goodness, what chapter? Uh, I mean, I, I joked at the beginning, didn't I, like, um, uh, about the next two hours. Uh, they would think as lightweights for having just two hours of teaching. Because this is a serious dose of... Bible school, right? This is like days on end, solid, morning till night. Guys have got some catching up to do. And what it represents is the conviction that uh, the task of being shaped and formed by the word of God is not something that you can just do casually. We need to feed on the word of God. If we are to, just think of the the theme of this whole uh, week, if we are to be able to live in this world but not be swamped by it or not become of the world. And I want to highlight for you three aspects of how these people responded wonderfully. Nehemiah, it's, it's, in one sense, it's really all about the people. There are some bad things that the people do towards the end, but it is about Nehemiah, but it's actually about the response of the people themselves. Uh, I've joked about this as a church planter in London. Um, there are no end of church planting manuals. And I remember physically throwing one of them across the room after I've been reading it for half an hour because it was all about the gifts of the church planter and nothing about the congregation. I'll tell you, I'd have lasted about three weeks as a church planter if it weren't for the wonderful congregation that the Lord blessed us with in those early days at Emmanuel in London. 
Just six families, just 32 people. Wonderful, wonderful people. It's all about the, the congregation. What might the Lord do with this 80 people? An embarrassment of riches in the form of spirit-filled disciples of Christ, if they feed on the word of God. And there are three aspects of this I want to draw your attention to. They were attentive to the word of God. They were gripped by it. Emotionally, they were gripped by it. Interesting for us reformed people to reflect on that, isn't it? And then they were obedient to it. And I want to go through these one at a time. First, they were attentive to the word of God. Look at verse 1 with me. All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate and they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. Isn't that interesting? It's like it's not the preacher saying, come on guys, it's time for Bible study. It's all the people just getting together. It's like, Ezra, Ezra. Now, Ezra, he's a contemporary of, Isaac, of um, Nehemiah, and he's, rather than being well-known as the, uh, the leader and the, the, the galvanizer of the wall building, he's the, the, the scribe and the teacher of the people. And so they're getting him. It's like, we, we need another Bible study. Pastor Hadding, yeah, we don't, your sermon wasn't long enough. We're banging on your door on Monday morning. Pastor Hadding, Pastor Hadding, teachers, it's, it's a public holiday. We want more, we want more sermon. Come on, we're all going to church. See you in five minutes and bring the Bible with you. You're going to need it. <laughs> you see the, the zeal. It's normally preachers who have to remind people about Bible study. Here's the other way around. The people are gripped by the desire to feed on the word of God. It's interesting, the phrase, they're gathered as one man. That's a military term. It's used in um, Judges 6.16 when Israel will strike Midian as one man. It's like, these guys are serious. They're not sort of like Vox Church 15 minutes late, see if they can find a seat. Oh, I can't. Just dash across to Starbucks out of comfort. Yeah, and then I'll kind of slip in in time for the Lord's Supper. No, this is... This is you ever do that? Oh, bring your little <laughs> neck. Um, these guys are serious. Verse 2, everyone's there. Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. Verse 3, check this out. He read from it, facing the square... Before the water gate, from early morning, that's probably like 6 a.m., till midday, in the presence of the men and the women and all those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. They really, really wanted to hear. And it's not just they wanted to hear. It's like, how do you think of the talks at Gloria Sancta? Are they the tedious cost that you must pay in order for your parents to help you out with the cost of coming here so that you get to hang out with your friends? I mean, great that you get to hang out with your friends. Or is it the case it's like, I can't wait for the Bible to be opened again. And that's a work of the Spirit in our hearts to create that love. And it's also, like every work of the Spirit in our hearts, something that we do. Verse 4, Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. So it seems like it's, it's the equivalent of an ancient microphone. You know, they build this wooden platform so it's nice and high and no, no soft surfaces, surfaces to absorb the sound. Everyone can hear him. Everyone can see what he's saying. Look down a bit further, verses 7 and 8. And you've got all these... No, I'm not going to read them again, all those people. <laughs> what was I doing to myself, making myself... <laughs> but all these people, the Levites, 
helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. And they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the meaning so that the people understood the meaning. So what's happening is something like this. You've got probably thousands of people gathered and crammed into this square. And you've got Ezra standing at one end of it on this big wooden platform, and he's teaching. And probably people some distance away, they can hear more or less, but they can't hear in detail. And they don't understand. I mean, this is the first time they've ever heard much of the law of God. And so what they've got is got little groups of this size and this size with a Levite or two. Just to kind of, you know, pause after five minutes of reading. And then the, the Levites give a little mini sermon and take questions. You got any questions? And you're like, somebody's always got questions. Where is she? And, and then they'll move on to the next chapter and the next chapter and the next chapter. And they just keep going for six hours because they really, really want to understand. And the, the truth is, if you really want to learn, you have to really, really work hard. You have to really want to learn. Learning, thinking is just like hard work. I was talking earlier this evening, um, uh, the, the table I was having dinner with, I, I recounted a, an episode that took place, I visited a theological seminary, it happened to be a Baptist theological seminary, I'm not a Baptist, but they still had me there teaching, it was quite fun, it's in London, and I was having lunch afterwards with some of the students, and I wasn't teaching on baptism, but somehow the subject came up, I don't know how it, <laughs> what you're going to do, right? anyway, but... Um, and so we're talking, and, and, and these guys are clearly a bit inquisitive. Most of them have been in Baptist circles most of their lives, and they're like, here's a Presbyterian. They're sort of poking me up, <laughs> see what happens. And, and, um, and I was just talking a little bit, and uh, one of the young men was there, he was sitting opposite me, and he, was, he said a few things, but he didn't say much. And at, at one point he asked me a question, and I answered his question, and, and he said, and I quote, huh, that's a really good point. I'm going to have to go and think about that. And I nearly fell off my chair. Because <laughs> nobody says that. I, I literally have never heard anybody say that in a decade and a half of, well, nearly two decades of working now in churches. It's remarkable how rare it is for somebody to go, you know, that's a good point. I, need, I need time to go and think about that. And he didn't say anything for the whole of the rest of the meal. I kept looking at him thinking, have I offended this guy? And he's like, no, he's just like, hmm. And it's, it's so rare that it's striking when it happens. Calvin, in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, John Calvin, he's explaining what he's writing them for. Now, you know Calvin's Institutes is like twice as thick as your Bible. Okay? And in it, basically, he explains what it's, what, what it's for. This is an introduction for, to the Bible. So that um, when you're reading all my commentaries... Literally. Um, I won't have to keep going into these long doctrinal excursi. I'll just gather all the doctrine stuff together in one small place <laughs> so I can make reference to it from all my commentaries, which you're obviously going to read as you're reading the Bible, just to, you know... Of course you are. And we, now we produce introductions to theology that are like this thick, little flippy, floppy, flappy... 28-page paperback pamphlets that are stapled, not even got proper binding, because we are such theological lightweights. And you give people an actual book, and they want to, like, is there an abridged version? I kind of get it on Audible, so I can sort of listen to it while I'm going to sleep. <laughs> no. You should be reading until your fingers bleed. I'm just joking. <laughs> but you get, you get more out of the Word of God if you put more into it. Uh, it's actually similar in every discipline, isn't it? I have a friend, I was telling this story earlier, a friend of mine, Andre 
Brown from London. His, his actual his stage name is Andre Saxman Brown because he's a saxophone player, he's a professional musician, and he's like a really, really good musician. So he's travelled all over the world playing gigs in Europe and in the Far East. He's never been to America to play because getting permission to work in the US if you're not American is really difficult. <laughs> anyway, um, but he's been all over the world. And, 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 and everywhere where he goes, people say things to him like, oh, I wish I could play the saxophone like you. And it makes him really irritated. Because, and he's very gracious, he doesn't actually get irritated. But he said to me once, you know, it is a bit annoying. Because, like, I've practised for tens of thousands of hours to get this good. Hours and hours every day. Thousands of hours a year for 15, 20, 25 years. You don't just get to play the saxophone. Like, oh, I wish I could play the saxophone. I wish I knew the Bible. It's like... <laughs> do, you, do you own a Bible? And do you never waste any time doing something fruitless? Don't sit there whinging at me that you don't really know. I'm showing you the Bible like my pastor does. Your pastor spends hours and hours soaking himself in the Word of God so he can sort the you crowd out. When really there's so much more you could be doing for yourselves if you had this attitude to it. And notice the reverence that they have. See, the word of God is not just, you know, it's not like a religious textbook. It's the word of God. Verse 5, look with me. And Ezra opened the book. It was was probably unrolled the scroll, the same word in Hebrew and Greek for scroll and book. He unrolls this scroll. Verse 5. In the sight of all the people, for he's above all the people, he's on this platform. And as he opened it, the people stood, what, with reverence? Like you stand in the presence of a great king or just to get a closer look, maybe I'll be able to see one of the words. Get a sneak preview before he reads them. Verse 6. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground because they realized that um, they're not just hearing um, a religious textbook. Well, they're, they're encountering the living God. And it's interesting, the bowing with your face to the ground, it's, it seems here to be an instinctive response rather than a scripted liturgical one. I mean, neither, neither is bad. I mean, we, we have a scripted liturgical kneeling, sitting, standing, arm raising in our church. I'm sure you do in yours. Many of you will. But it's interesting that there's there's a kind of reverence that just overflows sometimes. And, and I think we Reformed people are less good at it. I, I, I remember back in the, uh, probably about 2011 in London, um, one of our elders at Emmanuel, while I was away on holiday vacation, he <laughs> preached a sermon on Psalm 47, which begins, as you know, clap your hands, all you nations, extol him, all you peoples, etc., etc. And in the Q&A time after the service, he suggested that what we should actually... Actually, no, he did it during the service, right? He had to clear up the mess in the Q&A afterwards. He suggested that what we should do is clap our hands during one of the songs. <laughs> A bunch of reformed people, okay? Who's not, no, not sure about this. And I'm getting... You know, I come back from vacation Monday morning. I've got these emails. <laughs> we're, concerned, we're concerned about the direction that this church is moving in. I'm like, I was away for one week and know what happens. <laughs> So the next Thursday, 
um, I go to do some street evangelism with some friends of mine. Okay, now these friends, um, they're, they're street evangelists. They're not reformed people, right? Because, like, yeah, I know, which is ridiculous, isn't it? So that mostly, why, why are the reformed people not, you know, another day we'll talk about that. But there's one guy who's a kind of charismatic guy, one guy who's a sort of um, dispensationalist, works for an organization called Jews for Jesus, a little bit flaky. Um, and then these two charismatic ladies, hyper-charismatic ladies, who are basically standing on a street corner the whole time with their eyes closed, waiting for God to tell them who to go talk to next. Okay? And so before we go out, what we do every time is we would... Um, we would pray for like 15, 20 minutes. And so somebody would lead a little short Bible devotion and then we'd pray together. Then we'd go out for an hour and a half and then we'd go home. And one, it was one of the ladies, these charismatic ladies, one of their turn to, to, um, to lead this Bible, little Bible devotion before we went out. And she said, and I quote, um, we're not going to do a Bible study today. We're going to sing. I'm like, oh no. <laughs> I brought the songbooks and she hands out these songbooks. And she turns to a song, which is basically a paraphrase of Psalm 47. And she starts singing. And her friend gets up. Starts doing this. And she's just obeying the Bible. Like, <laughs> so embarrassing. But it's, it's humiliating, isn't it? That I, my lovely Carol, Carol the charismatic lady, is more faithful instinctively in response to when the word of God says, clap your hands, all you nations. Then, now, I'm, I'm not trying to make a point about how we should change our liturgy. I don't, I'm not trying to say, you've got to go home to your pastors and get on their case about clapping your hands in worship. There, there might be other reasons why that's not appropriate. Okay, I get that, but do you see the point? Like, we just love to debate theology. <clears throat> do not merely listen to the word. Do not merely listen. Who, who's, who's the one who reveres the word of God? Isn't it the one who just does what it says? And, and behind this, of course, is there's a whole... How many we doing for time? Oh, loads of time. Um, <laughs> I'm joking. I know, we've got, we've got limited time. Uh, behind this is a, a whole philosophy of what, what the Bible is. A book is a person speaking. My old friend David Field used to say that. A book is a person speaking. And when you speak with a person... You're forming relationship, and often if it's just you and them, quite intimate relationship, not necessarily romantic intimate, but quite close, you know? A young man came up to me earlier today and had a question. It's like, we had quite a long conversation, probably longer than he and I have had just the two of us for some time, and it's like, I feel like, I feel like we've taken like a little step forward in knowing each other, and it was about five minutes. And when we, when we, sit and and hear the voice of God that's what we're doing we're developing that closeness that intimacy with our creator historically reformed scholars and certainly preachers have recognized that this is true not only of the word written but in a secondary sense of the word preached there is a long and venerable tradition, Calvin and others, arguing that the preached word is the word of God. Now, it's not the word of God in the sense that we always get it right, nor is it the word of God in the sense that it's infallible, but it is the word of God in the sense that 
preaching is different from other kinds of teaching about, like a Bible study or something. Um, I, I'll show you first, and then I'll, I'll draw out some implications of this. Just, just flick with me to Romans um, 10 for a second. Um, Romans 10. Paul is, is wrestling with the, the question that arises from verse 13. Um, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, quoting Joel 2. But if everyone who calls on the name of the Lord is going to be saved, well, how are they going to call on him? And literally, I'll read it, what it says, I mean, your translation, in whom they've not believed, and how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? Now, you need to pause there. There's some translation issues here, and if you read Cranfield's superb commentary on the book of Romans, he clarifies that this can't really be exactly what is meant. What the text says is, look, listen, how are they to believe him whom they've never heard? And before that, how are they to call on him whom they've not believed? In other words, the, the thought here is not that people believe in Jesus because they hear of Jesus through the, the preaching, which Paul goes on to talk about. The thought here is that people believe Jesus because they hear Jesus. So what the text reads, and we'll read on, is how are they to believe, sorry, how are they to call on him whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe him whom they've not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So the thought is a preacher preaches and people hear the voice of Jesus and believe Jesus. Preaching is a different kind of communication from ordinary communication. You have the same thing in 1 Peter 1. Verse 25, I'll read one more reference. So there's about half a dozen references in the New Testament that speak in the same way. Ephesians as well. 1 Peter 1, verse 25, um, where, where Peter says, well, go back to verse 23. You've been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So that's interesting already. The, the living and abiding word of God is how you were born again, how you received new life and how you keep receiving new life, actually. For, and then he quotes um, from uh, the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah 40, all flesh is like grass and its glory is like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And then he carries on. And this word is the word that was preached to you. The word of the Lord that stands forever is not the word that's written, but the word that you heard preached. It's astonishing, high doctrine of the preached word of God. And I still, I still see people in sermons cruising through their social media. It's like, I don't know whether to laugh or cry or throw blocks of concrete around. I mean, it's like, (laughs) don't we all have that kind of temptation to be so easily distracted? From that which is so precious, which these people, back to Nehemiah, back to Nehemiah chapter eight, which these people, they're standing, craning their necks and trying to shuffle a bit closer to get a glimpse of this precious scroll, which their scribe is about to read to them because they're so attentive to the word of God. And so this sermon begins 
like, what a sermon. I mean, well, is there, yes, it's re- like I said, it's reading and then the Levites are talking and little discussion groups and they've got maybe some one-to-one conversations because somebody's clueless or somebody's upset or whatever it is. And anyway, verse 9, look. They become emotionally gripped by what they heard. This is the second aspect of their response. It's not just that they really want to hear and understand, but they are absolutely captivated and emotionally gripped by what they're hearing. Look, verse 9. Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Stop crying. What? (laughs) Don't mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. You can see they're hearing the Torah, and they're realizing their wretchedness. They're they're hearing the, the commandments being read, and they're realizing how they failed and sinned for years and decades. And they're absolutely crushed by this. Verse 10. Then he said to them, go on your way, chill. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who hasn't got anything. Because this day is holy to the Lord. Remember the, the, the same word which convicts us of our sin also promises grace. Guys, cheer up. <laughs> Go and invite other people to join you as you celebrate the, the grace that you've received. Don't be grieved. This day is holy to the Lord your God. So the Levites calmed all the people. It's like, guys, calm down. So the Levites pass on the message. This day is holy to the Lord. And all the people, verse 12, look. All the people went on their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them so what you see what you see is people's hearts are gripped and so i was, I was puzzling what what do i do now because oh it's tired late isn't it that's okay because we're all a bit tired how do I train you? How do I set you free to weep and to shout for joy? <laughs> I could never do this at church, you see, but I could do it at Gloria Sancta. <laughs> so weeping, okay, weeping. This probably won't make anybody else cry. It might make me cry. Um, so I was in London in 2018 for the um, 100th anniversary of the Royal Air Force. Um, and um, so we had all these fly-pasts of these... Amazing planes, and these are kind of modern sort of third and fourth generation fighters, Eurofighter Typhoon, and then like and and kind of Cold War era things like Phantom and a bunch of other things. You know what really gets me? It's when the, the Hurricane and the Spitfire fly past. Like, I mean, the Spitfire is the famous one that kind of got oval wings. These were the planes in, in, that we used to defend our nation from the Nazis during the Battle of Britain. You know, the, the hurricane is made of wood. It's like, who makes a plane out of wood? It's just insane. <laughs> like, the, the life expectancy of a hurricane pilot during the Battle of Britain was four weeks. These men were 19, 20 years old. They got into these death traps and went up to fight Messerschmitts that were made of aluminium. It's just like, you nutters. They, they used these machine guns. They were 303 Browning machine guns. Like, thanks, Browning, American manufacturer. Right? And they, they, put, they put these in the wings so they wouldn't shoot the propellers off because they realized those kind of synchromesh things didn't work properly. And, and they put them, but nobody bothered to do an experiment to see whether they'd actually work to destroy enemy planes. So about 1942. And then they realized, actually, this doesn't, they don't really work very well, do they? So they put... Um, 
20mm cannon in the wings, and then they started working fine. But you've got these Hurricane pilots who get behind a Messerschmitt 109 eventually, and, and Messerschmitt's just like, yeah, whatever. Because <laughs> it turns out that these rounds just go straight through their wings, and if they don't hit anything lethal, then that, you know, it's fine. And, and you see this thing fly past. It's like, oh. It's so emotional. These men fought and died to defend that puny little island. So, okay, so I get all choked up and you're all laughing at me. Okay, so anyway, okay, let me, let me try something different. Let me, let me try and make you shout. Okay. Um, I'm really sorry about this, Becky. Okay. I'm embarrassing my... <laughs> pastors get to embarrass their daughters. How many of you have read Shakespeare's Henry V? Have you read Henry V? You remember the Agincourt speech? You know that? You know the speech? So there's, this, there's a, the film version with Kenneth Branagh. And... and, and um, so it's the St. Crispin's Day speech, it's called. Okay. And, and, and it's this it's typical kind of England against the odds. We love that. That story works quite well for us. <laughs> and, um, and the English army is outnumbered like five to one. And, and one of the guys says, look, wouldn't it be wonderful if we had just one ten thousand of those men who sit idle in England this day? And then the king stands up and he's like, no, nah, we don't want any of those guys. <laughs> like, uh, what does he say? Oh, the fewer the men, the greater the share of honour. And then you remember this, he does that, the last bit of the speech, and everyone, I, I, I've been working on this. Okay. Do you want me to do the speech? Yes. 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 Okay. Well, if I do it, you have to do the shout at the end. Because okay? right, you're practising, and, and try and remember that this is something to do with the Bible. Okay? <laughs> what this is, is you're, you're experiencing, perhaps for the first time ever in a Christian gathering, the feeling of, yes! I want to set you free from the, the emotional shackles that bind you. Okay? So, and the, end of, the last words of the speech are, sent Crispin's day, and then there's going to be a competition. Are you going to win, making more noise than them, or are they going to win, making more noise than you, okay? So when you hear, sent Crispin's day, don't leave me standing here feeling like a complete muppet, okay? <laughs> yes! Remember? <clears throat> la, 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 la. All right. <laughs> Remember? You know how the speech, the, the last bit of the speech begins. We few. We happy few. We band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. Be he ne'er so vile. This day shall gentle his condition. And gentlemen in England now abed shall think themselves accursed that they were not here and hold their manhoods cheap whilst any speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispin's Day. And all the people went on their way to eat and drink and to send portions to any and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that had been declared to them. Now you've shown that you can do it. I'm not asked, please don't go back to your churches on Sunday. And like, <laughs> Your pastor is like... 
It's my privilege as a minister of the gospel to assure you in the name of Jesus that your sins are forgiven. Yeah! If you do that on Sunday, Pastor Neil will give you $100. No, I'm joking. But isn't it fascinating? Like, you go to a baseball game, you do it. You, you anticipate the glories of martyrdom for the sake of your country, you do it. You anticipate and experience the forgiveness of God the Son who gave himself for you. And it's like, thanks be to God. Not with these guys. You see, these guys are gripped by something. And I suspect they're gripped by the thing they've just been paying attention to, which is the word of God. And if you don't feel that, then take a lesson from these guys. So they really want to understand it. They're diligent, devoted to it. They're they're gripped by it. And then they get up and off they go. And they're thirdly, they're obedient to it. Verse 13. On the second day, so they've had a whole day of this, gone home, had a big party. It's like, yes. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. Private session. It's like, Ezra, we noticed something about a feast. It's supposed to have started. Feast of Booths. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem, go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm and other leafy branches to make booths as it is written. So basically what's happened, these guys have been tuned over what they heard. They come back to Ezra and they say, look, didn't you say that there's supposed to be a festival like right about now, the Feast of Booths? And as far as we know, we hadn't started any festival. So verse 13, like, shouldn't we be doing this? Verse 14, we found it written. And they go, verse 15, we've got to proclaim it and publish it in all the towns and in Jerusalem. So what are we going to do? And it's really, really striking. If you look at it just a little bit later, verse 17, all the assembly of those who'd returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, that's, another spelling of Joshua, the son of Nun. To that day, the people of Israel had not done so. Just think for one second. The people of Israel had never celebrated the Feast of Booths. Why not? Well, because it's a week-long holiday. And it's really inconvenient. comes at an annoying time of the year. Uh, and you've got it's loads of hassle and loads of preparation. You've got to go out into the hills and cut down branches and make a little booth and live in the wilderness. And then you've got to rejoice all week. <laughs> and, they, and they had never done so. Because it turns out that, I mean, it, it's actually not inconvenient. This is like, this is your liturgically enshrined public holiday celebration festival, which they found inconvenient. Isn't that fascinating? How many things has the Lord given us for our good, which we find inconvenient? The Lord's Day? Seventh commandment? Yeah, go on. God, idol, name, day, parents, murder. 
Adultery, yes. How many things has the Lord given us which we find inconvenient and neglect? When he's given it to us for our good. The Feast of Booths was always supposed to be the week-long holiday for the whole nation. And indeed, the day on which any sojourner, any foreigner who came through had to be invited you know, if you were passing through Jerusalem trying to do trade in the Feast of Booths, and you're kind of on your way from Moab to Egypt, good luck finding a shop open, but you just got invited to the rest of a seven-day-long festival just to party with the Israelites. You can't go to the Passover, you can't, can't celebrate the Passover, but you can celebrate the Feast of Booths because the goal is that these people, by being obedient to these mighty inconvenient commands to lay down your tools and just celebrate God's goodness, um, would welcome the nations around them. That's what the people of God are there to do, among other things. To, to be a community that by being faithful to those inconvenient-looking commands to rest and to celebrate and to rejoice would welcome the nations around them. And verse 16 to 18, they were obedient to the word of God. And verse 18, look, day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God, like a week-long Bible conference. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. And the solemn bit probably doesn't mean... Um, Sober, it means just formal. Eight-day-long summer camp, but mostly Bible, not so much Frisbee. Although a bit of Frisbee as well, probably in the afternoons, and a celebration of the Lord's goodness. What might the Lord do? What might the Lord do with a bunch of people like that? If he could get together, you know, a few dozen young, enthusiastic people, who would soak themselves in the word of God, who would devote themselves to feeding upon it, who would form good and wise habits and, and, and deep relationships and seek to live lives that were shaped and transformed by the word. What might God do with a bunch of people like that? I wonder. What are we going to see, aren't we? Yeah, we're all going to see. Everyone knows everybody's names now. We're all going to see what the Lord does. And you can guarantee that your pastors here will be praying for you as we watch. Let's pray. Merciful Father, we pray for these young people. That you would lead them to feed upon, delight in and obey your word. And so do great and wonderful things through them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.